I'll give like a 10-minute recap maybe, um, but then we'll get going from there. We have a lot of things to uh, cover. Um, this week, we're covering things like the antithesis and common grace. Next week, we're going to cover the Trinity, if we ever get to it, and the implications for the Trinity for defending your faith, which is actually a lot more than we, than we tend to think. Um, but if we ever get there to the Trinity... And then in the fourth week, if we also get there, we might cover um, common objections against Christianity, like evidentialism and the problem of evil. But hopefully we can focus on the Trinity a little bit more. Anyway, um, good. You guys ready? Yeah, you guys feeling good from last week? Um, Not overwhelmed yet, right? That's good. Good. Um, Let me pray then. Father, we thank you so much for this privilege, Lord God. What a uh, distinctive thing, what a rare thing it is that in a city like Jakarta, where um, our faith is a um, peculiar minority, that we can come, Lord God, as a church, as a body of Christ, Lord God, to think about such things, Lord, to think about such things as um, apologetics, as um, what it means to, to do it covenantally, what does it mean to do it as Reformed Christians, Lord God. It's a rare thing, Lord God. Help us be amazed at this. Help us uh, rejoice in this. Help us, Lord God, um, forget uh, for a moment, Lord God, the problems of this world and help us focus today and, and give our attention, Lord God, on your word and what your word has to say about um, our defending of the faith. But above all, Lord God, help us um, not do this as a matter of intellectual pride or mere intellectual curiosity. Help us uh, not do this, Lord God, in a way that just tears down people, in a way that just tears down arguments for argument's sake. Or, or merely to puff ourselves up to show ourselves to be um, more rigorous, to be more intellectual, to be um, smarter than others, Lord God, but rather remind us of the gospel, that we know this only because of your covenantal uh, grace, that you have saved us in Christ Jesus, that you have plucked us out from the fire, the fire that we all came from, Lord God, in common. And Lord, help us, therefore, winsomely communicate the same gospel to your world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, so um, last week we covered uh, Principia, Principium Ascendi and Principium Cognoscendi. Who wants to give us a quick recap of what is the Principia, or what is the Principium Ascendi and Cognoscendi? Just a quick recap of that. Who wants to give us a quick recap of that? Just raise your hand, and I will point point at you. End it. The foundation. Okay, good. The principle, good. The principle, the foundation, the source, right? So a principium, as you remember, um, refers to the foundation, the source, the beginning, the founds of all uh, these things, right? So there are two principia, particularly. So principium is the singular, principia is the, is the plural. What are the uh, principia they were working with in apologetics? They were presupposing. There's two of them. There's PE and PC. Ascendi and cognoscendi. All right. Um, what is the principium ascendi of the Christian faith and of, of Christian apologetics? The precondition for everything else. The precondition of being, right? So if the principium refers to um, the foundation, the things that are necessary for other things to be what they are, the preconditions for anything... The principium essendi is a principle of being, right? It is the precondition for all existence. 
um, what is the source, the foundation of all existence? That's what Principium Ascendi means. That's what we covered last week. And so if the triune God is the Principium Ascendi, what is our Principium Cognoscendi? The principle, the foundation, the precondition for knowledge. The, the Word of God, exactly. Revelation. Good. And um, we also covered what it means, therefore, to do um, covenantal apologetics a little bit more. If you guys remember, last week I drew a diagram, and basically the entire course could be kind of an unpacking of this diagram, right? Remember that I said that God had established a covenant with man, right? And humanity has an ethical obligation to keep up that covenant. Humanity has to obey the word of God, obey everything that is commanded there, uh, read the world of God and a lot of the word of God. We went through Genesis 2 and 3. So therefore, the world should be read through the word of God. But when man breaks the covenant with God, he breaks this ethical obligation he breaks the ethical obligation to read the world of God in light of the word of God. There are serious intellectual implications. When man refuses to read the world of God in light of the word of God, he breaks that ethical obligation. The breaking of this ethical obligation has intellectual implications. When you refuse to read the world of God in light of the word of God, your worldview will end up having inconsistencies within it. It would have um, incoherencies in both logic and also in behavior. You can't live consistently with that worldview, and you can't live logically with that kind of worldview. So um, that's a diagram that we covered last week as well. And so um, I also argue, therefore, that um, covenantal apologetics is understanding that um, in apologetics, no less than in any other theological endeavor, we stand on the word of God, therefore, to read the world of God, and when we come to the unbeliever, we're pushing them, remember, to become more epistemologically self-conscious. The unbeliever doesn't um, normally believe what he believes explicitly. He's not, he doesn't have it all thought, figured out. Most of the time when you meet the unbeliever on the street, most of the time when you believe, uh, when, when you hear what they say, when they say things like, all morality is relative, when they say things like, there's no God, when they say things like, well, um, freedom is the highest good, or those sort of things, people are not self-conscious about why they believe what they believe. They distract themselves from going underneath those kind of beliefs. They distract themselves from pushing the logical consequences of those beliefs. And so we want to push them to become more epistemologically self-conscious, right? We want to push them to say, okay, if you really believe that, what are the logical consequences of that? If you really take God out of the picture, if you refuse to read the world of God um, in light of the word of God, what are the intellectual consequences of that? We want to push them and say, if you deny God, and if you push God out of the picture, don't you see that these moral and logical consequences flow out of that worldview, flow out of that denial of God, right? And I argued last week, therefore, that if you want to do apologetics well, you have to stand on the Word of God. Because if you don't stand on the Word of God, you're, you're, you're denying the very source of coherence. You're denying the very principle of being and the very principle of knowing. And without standing on the Word of God, you won't have the resources to have a coherent worldview that attractively pushes them to, 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 to see the beauty of this worldview, the coherence of this worldview, right? Um, 
this is all still recap, um, by the way. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume a lot from last week. I hope you guys listened to, to what's last week. There's just too much there to cover. But is there, is there any questions before we move on um, today from last week? Maybe things that, if you guys were here last week, things that still remain unclear. Tazar. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I gave a whole host of examples from last week. Um, one example that I gave last week, for example, is um, if you put God out of the picture, and therefore you put um, the very person who, uh, in whom resides all meaning, all wisdom, all criteria for knowing, then you can't even read history properly. Someone last week asked, well, shouldn't we first cover the historical reliability of the Bible? Shouldn't we cover... What makes the Bible um, historically reliable? What are the historical evidences outside of the Bible that makes it reliable? And I want to argue that if you take God out of the picture, if you take the Bible out, if you don't presuppose the God of the Bible, if you don't presuppose the God of, of what the Bible reveals him out to be, you won't even have the capacity or the ability to read history coherently, right? Argued last week that when you write a, a, a sound history, for example, you have to make judgments about which parts of that history are important, which parts are meaningful, which parts are significant, right? Um, a lot of you guys aren't here last week, so I'll, I'll repeat this example. But um, if you're writing, for example, a biography of, because it's Mike's birthday, I'm going to use him as an example, of Michael Cianipar, right? So happy birthday, Mike. Um, if you're writing a biography of Michael Cianipar, right, uh, when he was born, you're not going to include um, how many trees there were in Indonesia at the time he was born, Right? Why? Because you're going to assume that's insignificant. You're going to assume that's not pertinent to his life. You're going to assume that how many trees were there when he was born does not impact his worldview, does not impact his history, does not impact the kind of person that he came out to be, right? Let's say you're writing a biography of Mike Sianipara then. Um, you might have a first chapter then on his parents or um, his, his, his origins, his origin story of how he came out to be, how his parents met, all those sort of things that made his parents the way that they are. And then after that, you might um, flow out the book in terms of the education that he received, the people that he met, his love life, who knows, right? But, but notice that when you write a biography about a person's life, you have to make judgments about what counts as significant, what counts as insignificant. You can't just write out every single detail that is relevant for that person's life. But how do you decide what is significant or insignificant? What criteria should you use to make sense of what is significant that, that makes a person what they are? And if you're a Christian, right, I would guess most Christian biographies and, and most Christian biographers would actually have a chapter. If you, if you read Christian biographies, if you read, for example, and this is a, maybe a bad example for some of you, but Eric Metaxas, who writes a, a biography about Luther or uh, who writes a biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he always does a chapter on their conversion. Why is that? Whereas Martin Marty, who writes a different biography about Luther, doesn't have a chapter on that particular conversion story, or maybe just leaves that in a few paragraphs and focuses on other things about Luther's life that is more significant. Why do we make a criteria? For, uh, uh, how do we decide that the conversion story is something significant for a person's life? You see, we have to make judgments about what is significant and insignificant. And if, let's say, Mike let's say, in his career, ends up um, 
I'm not saying that you did this, uh, ends up like embezzling a lot of money to Vietnam. <laughs> I'm not saying you did that, all right? And you, do, you omit this from your biography of him when you write this biography of him, and you say that this is not something significant. Most people will look at you and say, what's wrong with you? That is absolutely a significant thing, and you should include that, right? So notice, even to read history, to make judgments about history, to make judgments about a biography, a person's life, the history of a nation, whatever it is that you're writing about, it requires a certain sense of norm, of normativity. And unless you have God, and I would argue, unless you have the God of the Bible, the God as described in the Bible, a God of providence, a God that makes history intelligible and meaningful, you won't have a criterion by which you would adjudicate what is significant or insignificant, what is morally um, culpable or morally uh, a good thing to, uh, to include in a biography. And in those things, you have to make judgments about it. If you write about the Holocaust in a way that is good, <laughs> that means you've, you've written a bad historical account, right? There are judgments that you have to make. And so I want to argue, if you, if you keep the covenant of the Word of God and you read the world of God in light of His Word, you actually have a stable foundation, a stable ground by which you can read the world, including even its history. Well, but if you take God out of the picture, how do you even make intuitive judgments about what counts as evidences for the Bible and what doesn't count as evidences of the Bible? You see, to even consider evidences, you already require um, a norm in the back of your mind, a, a norm in your worldview to consider that's a good piece of evidence, that's a relevant piece of evidence. Where, where, where do we get that norm uh, from? Is it from the empirical judgments of the modern world? We say, well, unless it's a physical piece of evidence, it doesn't count as evidence. Uh, where do we get our standard of evidences even from? So I want to argue that even to consider evidences as something that is intelligible, you need a norm outside of yourself. You need to presuppose God to even consider evidences and to evaluate evidences, right? And so I think that, and this has a lot of implications, so I think belief in God, belief in the Christian God specifically, um, is presupposed in your very pursuit of academia. What are the evaluative judgments that you can make to that, 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 that say, this is a good education, this is a bad education? Um, I think belief in God is the, is the necessary presupposition for what makes a good citizen. How do you evaluate what is a good city? What is a good polis? What is a good um, uh, 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 citizenship? What does that look like? What is a good um, what is a good view of the human rights and all those sort of things? So, belief in God ends up becoming the very foundation for everything that you happen to believe and know, everything that you take for granted. And when we push the unbeliever to become more epistemologically self-conscious, we want to say, you take belief in God out. These very things that every day you take for granted. <laughs> loses its meaning. Your definitions of right and wrong, your definitions of what is significant or insignificant, your definitions of proper relationships, your definitions of um, um, career choices, uh, your definition of the good life. What does a good life even look like? Your definition, of defi your definition of definitions, your definition of hope, your definition of the future, how to evaluate the past. All these things become meaningless and formal um, values that stand on nothing. And most unbelievers are not epistemologically self-conscious about that. They're not self-conscious that if you take God out of the picture, these things that we somehow take for granted, and most of them are um, relative to our 21st century culture, relative to our historical underpinnings, um, become completely um, 
the base of foundations. So we, we want to argue that's because, fundamentally speaking, at the bottom of it, they have rejected the God in whom they were made. They have rejected the God um, whose image they bear. They have rejected the God that created this world that they embody. They rejected the God that sustains everything. And so, of course, there are going to be inconsistencies. Of course, we're not surprised when we push them and say, why do you believe that? How can you really believe that? Do you see that if you believe that, these consequences follow? Um, we are not surprised, right, that these things happen, that these inconsistencies pop, pop out. Does that make sense? So I covered that term, self-consciousness, as well last week. I hope you all remember. Um, so it's a covenantal apologetics because we stand on the word of God um, to do so. We argue that unless you presuppose the God of the Bible, um, everything that you take for granted become absolutely meaningless. And all you have to do is just think about it a bit more further, think about the consequences of your belief. And so the word of God is your principium cognizant, it's your principle of knowing, even for apologetics. And I just want to say that, therefore, you don't stand, up, even when you talk with the unbeliever, you don't stand on reason alone to talk with the unbeliever. You don't um, abandon your Christian faith. You don't abandon the Bible when you talk with the unbeliever. Even in your apologetic conversations, you're not merely um, memorizing philosophical arguments. You're not merely arguing for a generic theism, a generic belief in God. You're not abstaining from your beliefs in the Bible. You're continually obligated to obey the God of the Bible even when you talk with the unbeliever, right? So that was all last week. Again, um, this approach then, this continuing from uh, where we came from, your last page from last week's notes called a transcendental approach. It's called a transcendental approach because we want to argue that um, a transcendental approach refers to um, an approach that says that God, Christian theism, is the precondition for all intelligibility. It's a transcendental approach because we want to argue that we don't believe in God because of particular reasons. We want to argue that belief in God is not dependent upon particular reasons. Rather, belief in God is the precondition for reasoning itself. Belief in God is not dependent or based on particular reasons, but rather all reasoning is itself dependent upon belief in God, dependent upon God himself. And in your notes it says, um, precondition for the intelligibility of what we take for granted. Um, that's an elaboration of what I just wrote on the board. Precisely because we're all still made in the image of God, precisely because we're still made in God's world, we bear his image, we live in God's revelation, um, a lot of us take a lot of things for granted. We believe and take for granted that 
um, self-sacrifice is a good thing, that reasoning is a good thing, that logical consistency is a good thing. Um, but because of the covenant breaking of the, the Word of God, the intelligibility of what we take for granted will soon disappear. The Christian worldview, then, is the precondition for knowledge and wisdom. Now, there's a two-step approach that um, this ends up becoming. Um, in other words, practically speaking, when we speak with the unbeliever, you can think about this approach as a two-step approach. Um, it doesn't have to go according to this uh, two-step way in every case, but it's helpful to think about it in this way, maybe. The first-step approach is what Bill Edgar calls disclosure. Disclosure. So the first thing that we think about and we do apologetics and we talk about the unbeliever is that you would enter into the unbeliever's worldview, whether it is a Muslim or a, uh, a polytheist or a secularist, you step into the unbeliever's worldview. You step into their worldview for the sake of argument. You investigate it on its own terms. This is when you do the hard work of really listening to the unbeliever. Step into their worldview, step into what they're saying, dig up the assumptions behind what they're saying, and investigate on its own terms how that worldview ends up producing an inconsistency. That on the basis of its own starting point, whatever worldview you're investigating, if it's not the Christian worldview, if it's not the worldview based on the Bible, there will become, there will, it will produce inconsistencies. It will fail to deliver on its own promises. On the basis of its own starting points, it cannot deliver upon its own terms. And the second step then is called homecoming. In the second step of homecoming, you argue that the very things that that worldview take for granted, the very things that it promises, the very things that it desires, are actually found in the Christian worldview that they're rejecting. It's called homecoming because this is where you try to make the coherence and the beauty of um, what the Bible teaches, the Christian worldview, to the unbeliever. And it's called homecoming because there's a real sense in which this is the very thing that they know they desire. This is the very thing that they know will fulfill what it is that they've wanted in the first place, the things that their first worldview failed to deliver in the first place. And it's homecoming because there's a real sense in which the unbeliever, like the prodigal son, is haunted by the God that he denies because he continues to live in God's world and continues to live in his image. It will get through to the unbeliever, and when we showcase the Christian position, they cannot help but sense its attractiveness in some way, though they'll continue to suppress it apart from the Holy Spirit. So when you, when you go into disclosure, you enter into unbeliever's worldview for the sake of argument, show and how um, within itself the worldview ends up becoming internally inconsistent somewhere. Whether it's morally, where we say, you say you believe this, but you can't live that way. If you live consistently that way, the world will fall apart, or you know that you would fall apart. 
or if you think this way, here are the logical consequences, and that becomes a logical inconsistency. So whether it be a moral consequence or a logical consequence, there's going to be a, um, a, an undesirable consequence somewhere because they're not presupposing the God of the Bible. That's disclosure. And in homecoming, you then say, the very things that you've wanted in the first place, um, this sense of freedom, this sense of acceptance, this sense of um, not being judged, this sense of um, the freedom from judgment, the sense of... Um, commitment, whatever it is, logical order, whatever it is that you've wanted in the first place, actually comes from the very God that you're rejecting. You're inviting them, you're inviting them back, right? So that's what Bill Edgar calls it, and J.H. Bavin calls this approach, um, we might say, subversive fulfillment. subversive fulfillment, where your apologetic approach both subverts the unbeliever's assumptions, but at the same time fulfills it. It subverts the unbeliever's assumptions and at the same time fulfills it. And so I, I put there just a few questions that might help you. Um, that might, these are the kind of questions that might be kept in your head when you're coming to the unbeliever with a, with, in a particular apologetic conversation. What are the hopes and desires and longings in the culture or the person's worldview? When you come into disclosure, you're asking yourself, what are the hopes that this person or this worldview is communicating? What is it that this person prizes in their heart? What is it that they're longing? What is it that this worldview is setting up um, them for? In what ways, then, are the distorted versions of right hopes and right desires and right longings? Um, in other words, there's something um, about their wrong hopes, their wrong desires, that are, are actually still parasitic on a right longing, a right hope. And in what way does the Christian worldview or the gospel fill that initially misdirected desire or longing. Um, let me just give a, a common example of this, right? Um, this is not something you're going to talk about every day, but it's something that's going to come up some way, right? What is the hope and the longing and the desire in a culture that is addicted to pornography? Right. Instant gratification, right? So that's, that's where they think they're going to find their longing in, instant gratification, and a false sense of in intimacy, right? It's instantaneous intimacy, and it doesn't ultimately deliver. So underneath this cultural addiction to pornography, um, underneath this misdirected desire, right, that ends up becoming all about pictures on a screen, all about instant gratification, all about a false sense of intimacy, underneath that false desire is actually a proper desire for real intimacy. All right? Pornography is um, a misdirected kind of our desire for intimacy, um, which is found ultimately, of course, in, in the conjugal bed. 
And we want to argue that the reason why there's so much sexual dysphoria in a pornographically uh, inclined culture is because they've misdirected their desire for intimacy. And we want to argue, see, and it doesn't take very long to argue this, don't you see that you're giving in to this kind of addiction is making you less fulfilled than when you first began? Don't you see that you created more for mirror images on the screen? Don't you see that you're created more for inst than instant gratification? Don't you see that you're, in you're, you're created for something, an intimacy that is much deeper than that, an intimacy that is grounded in commitment, and an intimacy that is grounded in covenant? Why is it that there's more dysphoria precisely when the culture starts giving into their addictions? They're giving into these impulses. Well, you see, it's because relationships are not meant to be that way. Relationships are instead meant for long-term, committed, covenantal intimacy. Um, that's just one example, right? And that's because how do we know that this is what relationships are for? How do we know that monogamy and not polyamory is, is right? Why is there still an instinctive sense in which polyamory is not a proper manifestation of relational behavior? Well, it's because we know deep inside that made in God's image, it is not proper for man to be alone, but man and woman are supposed to come together and become one flesh. You see, we're standing on the scriptures, therefore, to communicate to them a real kind of intimacy that the world is directing into the wrong way. So we subvert their behavior. We subvert that assumption that this is where they're going to get intimacy, that this is where they're going to get gratification. This is where they're going to get meaning. But at the same time, we fulfill it. Redirect that desire elsewhere. Redirect that definition elsewhere. Maybe this is not the source of intimacy that you really want. Maybe there's a different way of doing things that will actually fulfill your misdirected hope, your misdirected definition of intimacy. And it makes sense of why. See, this is why Christianity is also making sense of why it is that we have these sort of intuitions, why it is that we have these sorts of instincts. You know. Why it is that even the non-believer senses that there's something wrong with pornographic addiction, right? There's something wrong about that. Why is it that we have these um, heartfelt intuitions about what is proper and what is improper? Why is it that we still feel this heartfelt intuition that at a wedding, that, that, that forces us to cry in weddings, even the unbeliever, and forces us to, to commend a judgment in the face of sexual dysphoria, especially in pornographic addiction. Well, Christianity, I think, offers some resources to say, here's why these things are happening. Here's why you feel the way that you do. Here's why the things that you take for granted actually doesn't make sense in your worldview, but makes sense in our worldview. So we offer disclosure, and we, we give them homecoming as well. Any questions? I'm covering that last page super quickly because I want to get to lecture two, which is supposed to be today. <laughs> David. Uh, the, the starting points are the, the, the principles of being and knowing that we covered from last week, the triune God and the Word of God. Um, that's where we get our definitions, uh, and that's where we get our worldview. So, um, I guess what do you mean by sustain itself?
I guess I'm not, I'm not sure what the question is still, but um, do you mean like, how do we know that Christian theism is logically consistent or like? Um, well, we explore it in terms of its own terms, right? Uh, so for example, um, when we say that Christian theism is logically consistent, we don't mean that when we face the Christian worldview, there's not going to be tensions within it. For example, we still have tensions within our worldview. How does a good God, um, how is a good God compatible, for example, with ordaining everything that comes to pass, all the evil in this world? How, do, how is the sovereignty of God related with human responsibility? That's a real tension in our worldview, right? Um, we don't want to say, however, that it's a tension that we can't account for. Because in the back of this tension between the problem of, of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it's a more basic tension in the triune God, where we have God in one being, but three in persons. So in the back of the Christian worldview is a mysterious confession about the Trinity, where we have a fundamental tension between one and three. So we have a worldview that could account for the tensions in our worldview. But if you have a worldview that says, um, everything has to be absolutely logical, then you can't, you don't have a worldview that can sustain itself when it faces paradoxes that you inevitably will encounter in the world. We can talk about Islam more, more particularly, but I decided not to just because it might get a bit too technical here and there. Some, some of you are shaking your heads. Let's not talk about Islam. But, <laughs> but uh, Andrew, go ahead. What do you mean? Could you say that again? No, I wasn't. I, I said that um, we're going to talk about that hopefully next week with regard to the Trinity. Yeah, but not particularly Islam. Um, unless you're really dying to hear about how what I think about the difference between this and Islam, then you can ask me afterwards. Um, but I want to argue. Anyway, go ahead. Um, I hope that's clear. So next week, hopefully, we'll talk about the Trinity and paradoxes. So let's move on to lecture two, the nature of unbelief and the antithesis in common grace. If we're standing on the Bible, we're also assuming that Christ and the Word of God is the very source of wisdom. And we cannot get at the apologetic encounter. We can't really become wise in our apologetic encounter unless we know what the Bible itself says about unbelief. What is unbelief? What is the nature of unbelief? Is it ignorance? Do people merely lack data? Do people um, disbelieve in God primarily because they don't know any better? Primarily because they don't have enough evidences? Right? Bertrand Russell, for example, argues that in an interview, um, the interviewee asked him, well, what if one day you do die, um, Mr. Russell, and you end up before the judgment seat of God, and God would ask you, why didn't you believe in me? Bertrand Russell said he would shake his fists and he would say, not enough evidences. Not enough evidences. That's what he argued is the basis of his unbelief. Now, is that really the nature of unbelief? What does the Bible say about unbelief itself? And so to become wise in our apologetics, we need to um, account for and reckon with what the Bible itself says about apologetics so that when you hear the unbelieving claims, you can get behind those claims and argue, okay, 
this is what the Bible says about unbelief, and this is what that person is saying. So what's really going on? And to get at the nature of unbelief, we're going to have to cover very briefly what the Bible says about it, especially in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 32. This is considered the classical um, place where we get um, what the Bible says about the hard dynamics, the, the nature of unbelief at its very root. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 32, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Let me just pause there. Note a few things about what we just read, right? Note, for example, that according to this text, God's character and his wrath are revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God himself has shown it to them, so according to the Bible, the problem with unbelief is not that God is hidden or God is unclear or that God hasn't revealed himself. Rather, according to Scripture, God has indeed revealed himself in everything. What can be known about God is plain, not because we have been conscientious of um, seeking him and coming to know him, but rather primarily because God has shown it to them. It is by virtue of God's initiative, by virtue of God's action, that he himself has become known. And what is known is not just the wrath of God, but rather, look at verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, which have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So by virtue of God's action, by virtue of him being the creator of everything, by virtue of all things imp uh, being imprinted by his being, everyone knows and perceives God. Because God has revealed himself to them, has shown it to them, so that they are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because they know better. And look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now think about that language again of being without excuse, right? What does it require? What does it take for you to become someone who is without excuse when you do something wrong? It's a pretty basic question, especially in the light of this text. What is required for you to be without excuse? If you break the speed limit, for example, not in Indonesia because nobody really breaks the speed limit, but um, let's say in America, you're driving, you're driving 90 in a freeway with a limit of 60 miles per hour, right? And the police officer uh, puts you aside 
and tells you the very things he says is, sir, do you know how, how fast you're driving? And you say, 90. That's inexcusable, sir. Why do they say that? You should have known better. Why you should you have known better? Signs are everywhere, right? You should know better. This is a highway. Nobody drives 90 on this highway, right? In other words, they say it's inexcusable if it's absolutely clear, and in fact, you do know better, right? You're inexcusable because you did the very thing that you know you're not supposed to do. And in the same way, what Romans 1 is saying about unbelief is this. It is inexcusable. Why? Because the root of unbelief is not that God is unclear or that the revelation of God is unclear. The root of unbelief instead, notice, is in verse 18, by their unrighteousness we suppress the truth. The root of unbelief, therefore, is not primarily an intellectual problem. The root of unbelief, instead, is rooted in the will. It's rooted in the heart. By their unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. So the problem with unbelief is not ignorance. It is not um, excusable ignorance. It is not excusable lack of information, right? If you have a, a child or a nephew or a niece or something, and then they're, they started eating macaroni every day, there's a sense in which, right, that's excusable behavior because they don't have the cognitive capacity to understand that if you eat macaroni and cheese every day, you're going to get a heart attack at 55. <laughs> they don't have the cognitive capacity for that, right? That's excusable lack of information. That's excusable ignorance. But if you have an adulterer who cheated on their wife or husband, and then that adulterer says, I didn't know I was supposed to not do that, you kind of shake your head and say, come on. That's how the, the Bible talks about unbelief, by the way, friends. The Bible doesn't talk about unbelief in terms of inculpable ignorance or lack of information or lack of evidences or even God hiding, right? Notice right after the fall, right, it was Adam and Eve who started running away from God, not God. God never went anywhere. They started to hide themselves from God. Ever since the beginning of the, of the fall, ever since the entrance of sin, the, the nature of mankind is always to suppress the righteousness of God. It's always to suppress the very God that they know, and they try to, in self-deception, avoid Him. But they, of course, can't, inevitably always avoid him because they're made in his image because God continually reveals himself to every person this knowledge of God always ends up popping back out I had a, I had a professor in seminary who argues that suppressing the knowledge of God is like holding a plastic ball underneath the water you ever tried that when you were a kid maybe you try to hold a plastic object it inevitably pops it back out right and in the same way when we suppress the knowledge of God we might try our hardest to suppress the knowledge. We might try to sink it back into uh, the realm of the unconscious. We, not, we might try to avoid God at all costs. But precisely because God is a relentless God and precisely because His revelation of Himself is so clear in creation, you can't help it but have that knowledge of God pop back out. You can't help it. And this is why in our method of disclosure and homecoming, and I'll repeat this multiple times throughout the, the next two weeks as well, is that when you are um, 
disclosing to them the inconsistencies of their worldview, and we're showing them the coherence of the Christian worldview and fulfilling what they desired in the first place, they can't help it but sense this sense of divinity in them pop back out. They can't help it but, but have this knowledge of God somehow, if you do this well and just communicate to them what it is that they're longing for in the first place, it will come and pop back out. And J.H. Boving doesn't just call this movement a subversive fulfillment. He argues that the suppression of the truth that you see in Romans chapter 1, again, it's not primarily intellectual. It's not as if um, you fail to infer logical things about God by reason alone. J.H. Boving, um, the nephew of Herman Boving, um, who's also a missionary to Indonesia, he argued that um, the suppression of the truth is akin to psychological traumatic repression. Psychological traumatic repression. The suppression of the truth that is spoken of Romans chapter 1 is less about intellectually um, failing to infer things about God or failing to reason about God well. The suppression of the truth here is more psychological than it is intellectual. Think about, for example, he says, um, trauma, the, the, just the phenomena of trauma, right? When someone faces a so-called event of, of trauma, how many of you guys have seen Molly's game, right, recently? You guys saw that she was beaten, well, sorry, spoiler. She was, be- <laughs> she was, she was beaten up at one point by like, um, uh, uh, so, uh, sorry. <laughs> it's not, it, this is not too much of a spoiler. It doesn't impinge upon the story too much. So let's just, let's just say there's this one event in Molly's game, right, where um, a, a mobster um, invaded her home and, and beat her up. Um, she was completely bruised up, she was bloodied up, and stuff like that. And she says in one line, um, as she recounts that story, um, my memories of that event had become completely uh, unclear. People say that's common when you have what they call an event. That's, that was a, like a line in the movie, right? Why is that? Why is it that your memory unconsciously and inevitably becomes unclear around a traumatic event? She says, for, for those few months, for those few weeks, it all became hazy. Because there's something about a traumatic event, right, J.H. Boving argues, that forces you in your unconscious to repress those events, to repress the memories of those events so that you don't have to encounter it. Because if you have to encounter those memories on a day-to-day basis, all the time before you, if you remember it all the time, you can't function. There's a way in which um, that traumatic uh, event really impinges upon your life. You can't function. So the body, to cope with it, um, finds ways unconsciously to repress that memory in some way. Right? And, and arguably, Molly's game is all about traumatic suppression, about her dad and stuff like that, but I won't spoil that. <laughs> um, so so J.H. Bavink argues in a very poignant sense that unbelief is fundamentally um, the unbeliever repressing and suppressing, repressing and suppressing the traumatic rupture of their covenant breaking before the Lord. And as a poignant way of, of, of pointing out that unbelief is fundamentally about the unbeliever knowing that he has broken his covenant commitment, he has committed adultery before the Lord, and he's looking for all sorts of intellectual, unconscious, and psychological ways to repress that memory. They create and fabricate a world where they don't have to encounter God, unconsciously and intellectually. At the level of the psychological heart commitment, 
they fabricated a world where they don't have to encounter God at all. So again, to take an example from Molly's game, I'm sorry. Um, the first thing that happens when she had that ski accident, what did she do? <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> All right, I'm just watching the first half of the movie. This is, this is like the first 10 minutes, guys. Another spoiler. But anyway, the first thing she did, the first thing she did in the tra traumatic event is what? She moved locations entirely. She took a gap year. <laughs> Everyone's like, I hate gray. All right. Um, so you don't have to watch the movie now. You save your money. No. She moved locations entirely. All right. She took a gap year, slept in her friend's couch for a year, right? All right, enough. Okay, okay. Um, why? As a way to forget. She can't be around the places where she remembers that particular accident. And in the same way, J.H. Boving argues that the unbeliever has fabricated this false world, this false sense of security, this false sense of a, a worldview designed to keep God out of the picture. They distract themselves from the question. They say meaning is completely found elsewhere. They say it's completely irrelevant to their lives. In just the same way as when um, someone who's faced a trauma would argue, I don't care about that event. That doesn't affect me at all. I don't care about what they think, right? And you know when someone is saying that they really care about what that event is, they really care about what, what that person or, or the, those people think, right? There's a real sense in which then that, that your covenant breaking before the Lord, even by the, by the moment you were born into this world, because you're in Adam, has caused you to psychologically repress the knowledge of God that you have. In the same way, when we commit acts of sin, when we commit uh, things that are guilty, when we have terrible things happen to us, right, we try to repress that memory. But inevitably, just as all traumatic uh, psychologists know, there are triggers. Triggers that, that pop back that event or that memory into your head. And you can't help but feel that all everything again. And in the same way, think about the apologetic encounter as you treating a psychological patient who's facing this trauma. And precisely to overcome the trauma, they need to confront it again. There's a real sense in which when you're, when you're talking to them about the knowledge of God that they're suppressing, you're waiting for that moment where this knowledge of God pops back out and they have this moment of breakthrough where they say, I never realized that. I knew this was happening. And in any case of self-deception, somehow in the deep sense of his unconscious or her unconscious, they do know that they're deceiving themselves. Self-deception is always something that you ultimately, when you look back, you say, I knew it. I knew I was not to myself, but at the moment of self-deception, it is not something you consciously are aware of. Examples could be piled on for that. So, um, but I think that's a really um, insightful way of, of thinking about Romans chapter one, that every unbeliever has a traumatic rupture uh, had a traumatic experience because they know that they have broken covenant with the Lord and they deserve the wrath of God. Let me just read the rest of it now, verse 24 onwards. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. And that's a phrase we're going to come back to later. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Notice, right? Break the ethical covenant, it becomes intellectually disastrous. It's, it's unnatural for these things to happen. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, yeah, I won't comment on that. But, and since they did, not see to fit, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, and this is the key text, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Despite knowing better, despite knowing what they know, they continue to practice these things. And despite knowing that they deserve the wrath of God, which means death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So in the next page, I summarize all the observations that I just made for you there. Everyone knows and perceives God. God's action and an ongoing work in revealing himself is what accounts for that knowing of God. And then there's a culpable suppression. They're without excuse. And although they knew they did not give thanks, they exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God for perishable creaturely things. Though they know God's righteous decree, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the, the problem is not ignorance or lack of knowledge. The problem is culpable psychological suppression. Unbelief, then, biblically speaking, is foolish. And it's dysfunctional. So as Psalm 14 once says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So the controversial theses of Romans 1, let us say, about the nature of unbelief is, first of all, there's no such thing as an atheist. No one is a real atheist. You guys are like nodding, like, okay, like, that's, that's, that's controversial, friends. Like, okay, okay, but cool. Never mind. I was expecting like, but, but anyway. Um, but no, there's no such thing as a real atheist. Everyone deep inside their hearts knows God. And this is why apologetics will inevitably bear some fruit because you're appealing to the very sense of deity that they already know. You're appealing to that sense of trauma that they already know. Precisely because they're repressing these things, there will be a fruitfulness in your apologetics efforts. It's not a mere shouting match. You're not just telling them things that doesn't hit or, or touch their hearts. You're telling them about the very things that they long for, that they crave for, but they're suppressing. And so it's foolish and culpable that they continue to repress these things. Apologetics, therefore, is less about an intellectual battle, but more about a battle of the heart. 
which has intellectual ramifications. And of course, the second uh, thing that's controversial, not only are, are there no such thing as an atheist, but also um, unbelief is inherently psychologically and, and intellectually foolish. And that should kind of wake us up a little bit as we think about the apologetic encounter. It, it, and I hope what this exposition of Romans 1 kind of gives us as well is the realness of the apologetic encounter. There's, there's, there's a kind of facade that happens in the level of public intellectual debate. I've mentioned this last week, where apologetics is primarily about intellectual takedowns, right? Um, two opponents come head to head in a public display of wit and intelligence, um, uh, uh, of debate and of criticism. And you come away thinking, well, who won the debate? Who won the debate? It's less about that and more about bringing the unbeliever back home, bringing them back to the knowledge of God that they know and suppress. And as you read a text like Romans chapter 1, this isn't just talking about the unbeliever. Because we have indwelling sin, we know the many ways in which we continue to suppress the knowledge of God. All right? We know the many ways in which we continue to deceive ourselves. We know the many ways in which we continue to sin. And despite knowing what we know, we continue to do the things that God hates. So I hope this brings apologetics down from the level of, like I said last week, philosophical, um, airy display of wits, and more to the real um, application of scriptural truths to people's hearts that long for it, but continually suppress it in foolishness. Let's take a five-minute break, and we'll cover the rest of the stuff. Yeah. In our discussion, we just covered Romans chapter 1, and we're going to cover the antithesis now. Okay, very good. So, let me just erase this. We're going to cover the antithesis and common grace. Good. All right, we're going to cover the antithesis. Now, I hope you guys have noticed something about Romans chapter 1 there that um, is, is clear throughout the whole of the Bible, is that man, if left to himself, especially after the fall, is totally depraved. There's a real sense in which they are not capable of, of obeying God. They continually suppress the truth. And if God were to give us up, that's the, the terminology in Romans chapter 1, God gave them up to their desires. God gave them up to their intellectual debasement. God gave them up to their foolishness. They end up, what, um, disobeying God even more. They end up running headlong towards sin. They end up committing all kinds of depra depraved acts, right? So man is totally depraved if left to himself, right? But if that's true, you have to ask this question. How come in the non-Christian world there's so much good that we see? If the Bible is true, if the Bible's uh, account of anthropology uh, of the fallen humanity is true, how come in the non-Christian world there's so much good that happens? There's so much um, self-restraint, there's so much um, relative peace, relative order, relative stability, right? 
how come people, in fact, in our personal everyday phenomenal experience, don't experience people as these depraved creatures that the Bible often makes us out to be apart from grace? Well, to comprehend this um, uh, conundrum, so to speak, we need to, to, to understand two terms that have become common um, terminology in Reformed theology, and that is the antithesis in common grace. And this is absolutely crucial in our apologetics, and it will also make clear our transcendental approach um, that, that we advocate for here at CCC. So think about the antithesis here for a moment. The antithesis refers to, right, this divide in humankind throughout history between those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. Think about, for example, right after the fall. What happened after um, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, ate of the tree? What did God say to them? What are some of the things that he said to them? At the fall, right? What, um, right after Adam and Eve at, ha- at ate uh, of, of the tree of, of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, what did God say to Adam and Eve? Where are you? Okay, that's one of it, which talks about our suppression. Okay, what are other things? Sorry? Who told you to eat, right? Okay, that's good. So who are they obeying instead of God? Who is their Lord instead of God? What else? What? Childbirth is going to be painful and work is going to be painful. So because you've broken this covenant, your relationship with the world will be terrible. What else? There's one more thing that really describes the antithesis. All right, good. There's this, the snake will be crushed by Christ, right? We talked about the two lords. There's one more thing, <laughs> but but seeds. The seed of the woman would be what? Put at. I'll put enmity. Remember this. I'll put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? Remember that. So at the very core of the. Um, um, God's response to Adam and Eve is a note of grace. He is saying, I am not going to let you become um, allies with the serpent forever. I will instead put enmity, make enemies out of, in other words, the seed of the woman or those who flow out of the woman and those who flow out of the serpent. And you see this fundamental um, enmity, this fundamental um, antithesis, this divide between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent throughout all of redemptive history. Um, some of you have probably heard me talk about this before, but you see it throughout Cain and Abel. Right? One was accepted by God. One was not accepted by God. One was um, disobedience and wanted God for his own self-gain. Another one worshipped God properly. Right? You see this throughout Jacob and Esau. Right? Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. Um, you see this throughout the divide between Israel and Pharaoh. Egypt representing the serpents and Israel representing the seed of the woman. So throughout all of redemptive history, you see this fundamental divide between the people of God in Christ and the people that are um, the product of the seed of the serpent in Adam. And this fundamental divide runs all the way throughout redemptive history. And Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5, especially if you went through our cohort in union with Christ. And he divides all of humanity up. All those who are in Adam and all those who are in Christ. So there's a fundamental antithesis between those 
in Adam and those in Christ. There are two, in other words, in the words of Abraham Kuyper, two kinds of people, the regenerate and the unregenerate, the humanity in Christ and the humanity in Adam, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the people of light and the people of darkness, those saved by grace and those that God gave over. It's a theme that you could trace out all throughout all of the Bible. So in this antithesis, um, there are three aspects to it. First is that it is real. So despite what you see around you, the commonality that we have, the fact that we enjoy Starbucks coffee um, from unbelieving uh, baristas, the fact that we um, use and utilize um, secular education all the time, the fact that we do enjoy um, business partners that are non-Christians, the fact that we do have friends with non-believers, uh, the, the fact that we have co-belligerents for our political agendas with non-Christians, all of these things um, can imply that there's no real antithesis between Christian and non-Christian, right? Um, the, the many myriad of commonalities, in other words, that we enjoy with unbelievers in this present age could imply that there's no real antithesis. But the first thing, this is the three things, by the way, come from um, Abraham Kuyper's work. The first thing he wants to note, though, is that despite the commonality, despite the experience of commonality and peace and relative stability and harmony and our co-belligerence with unbelievers, there's a real antithesis. There's still a real antithesis. There's a sense in which we have to walk by faith even in this, that you are closer, fundamentally speaking, to the Christian brother that you never get along with than with your best friend who's never been a believer. So there's, there's, there's something to this antithesis that he says you have to take by faith that is a real antithesis even when sometimes your common experience denies it. Not only is it real, it is also radical. It comes from the Latin word radix. And radical, um, in the way Kuiper is using it, which comes from its Latin origins, does not refer to our common way of using the word radical in like, kind of like a positive fashion, like, that's rad, man, that's not bad at all, <laughs> right? Radical, in, in Kuiper's usage, refers to the root of things. The antithesis is not only real, it gets to the root of things. That is, fundamentally, you're defined by whether or not you're in Christ or whether or not you're in Adam. So what defines humanity is not the commonality that we have between those that are in Adam and in Christ, but rather, at root, there's a real divide um, between them. There, there's, a, there's a presuppositional conflict, you might want to say, between those who are unbelievers and those who are in Christ. Um, it, it defines humanity. It defines disagreement. It gets to the root of things that even though you're inconsistent with who you are sometimes, what defines you ultimately is who you are in Christ. And the unbeliever might be inconsistent with who he is sometimes, but what defines him is still um, his sin and, and defying God in Adam, right? And so Kuiper argues that when you have, um, and this is also partly Van Til, they would argue that when you have an agreement with an unbeliever, it is because one or either of you are inconsistent with their own root principle. 
Let me say that again. When you have an agreement, whether morally or intellectually, with an unbeliever, it is because one of you or both of you are inconsistent with their root principle. In other words, what accounts for the agreements that you have with the unbeliever is that one of you or both of you are inconsistent with one another, with, with, their, with their own root principle. So Van Til would argue, if the unbeliever is truly consistent with his own um, radical roots, the roots of his belief, the roots of his identity, right? If the unbeliever is completely consistent with it, that means the unbeliever will have no commonality with you whatsoever. If the unbeliever really is consistent with his belief, for example, that human beings are not created in the image of God, they would not also consistently believe that human beings have natural rights, that human beings are worth of dignity, that human beings long for things that are outside of survival. The only reason why Van Til argues that um, they, they could affirm those things as well is because they're inconsistent with their fundamental um, belief in the non-existence of God. And likewise, when you agree with an unbeliever, let's say when you, um, morally speaking, participate, say, in, a, in, in acts of drunkenness, for example, with them, it is because you're fundamentally inconsistent with your Christian principles. You see, it cuts both ways, right? The only reason why you can enjoy that moment of commonality in a drunken party is because the Christian has become inconsistent with his principles. So what accounts for um, commonality and co-belligerency between the unbeliever and the believer is a fundamental inconsistency with one or, or both of their root worldviews, root beliefs, root identities. So, so Kuiper would argue that um, the antithesis is also eschatological. Eschatological just refers to, it's a fancy word that refers to um, the study of the last things. Um, study of the end times, the study of um, the final days. It's eschatological. What does Kuiper mean by that? Think about, for example, the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth um, is a place where there is no sin, no unbelief, no inconsistency, no temptation, no death. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth is where there is all righteousness, all peace, the glory of God overshadowing all things, right? All harmony. So the new heaven and the new earth is a place where believers stop being inconsistent. The new heavens and the new earth is a place where believers stop being, consist uh, stop being inconsistent. They're completely consistent, in other words, with their real new creation identities in Christ. So they'll never sin again. They'll never lie. There will be no gossiping. There will be no slander. There will be no murdering. There will be no participating in sinful acts. And that is why Kuiper argues in the new heavens and the new earth, there are no unbelievers. Because in eschatology, in the last days, right, in, in the final state of the new heaven and the new earth, right, God makes all believers consistent and perfected and lets go of his common grace to the unbeliever so that they too become perfectly consistent 
with their behavior, with their logical thinking, with their identity. So, if believers and unbelievers reside in the same place, Kuiper argues, nothing would happen except for war. <laughs> Because the believers would be so zealous for the righteousness of God that they would continue to continually wage war against the unbelievers, and unbelievers would be so explicit in their hatred against God and those who bear his image, including themselves, that they will commit continual suicide and kill one another and kill you. So there's a real sense in which the antithesis is only unclear now precisely because it is not yet the last um, day. It is not yet the final judgment where God's common grace over the unbeliever is lifted off and you are perfected in your sanctification. You see what I mean? So the only reason why we enjoy this relative commonality, this relative stability, in other words, it is because we are still sinners as Christians and the sinner is not consistent because of common grace. What accounts for the relative good that you see in the unbeliever, in other words, is God's common grace. And what accounts for the commonality that you have with the unbeliever is um, God's common grace and you still being a sinner. You still have indwelling sin, right? So people, what this tells us, um, people often say that what you have in common with the unbeliever It's because in the middle of things, in the middle of your disagreements, is this secular space, a neutral space where you can all just agree and live in peace. You see what I mean? And your faith is private, your faith is personal, and the unbeliever's worldview is private, it's personal, it's his business, what he wants to do, and his thinking and his morality. But you can meet in this neutral area in between where it's the public sphere, and your private beliefs don't affect this neutral area in between. We hear that all the time. See, Kuiper and the Reformed tradition disagrees with that fundamentally. There is no neutrality. What I've just given you with the antithesis is a theological and biblical account that accounts for commonality. And that commonality is not rooted in neutrality. It's not rooted in the secular space. is rooted in a fundamental inconsistency between two antithetical principles. It's rooted in a fundamental inconsistency between two antithetical principles. That if both parties of the antithesis were fully consistent with their principles, there would be no commonality whatsoever. Is that clear? All right, good. So um, notice here that what I've just kind of diagrammed is this. There are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. There are two humanities, in other words. But precisely because it is not yet the last day, there is this shared commonality by virtue of inconsistencies. And sin by virtue of the believer and common grace by virtue of the, 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 the unbeliever. And in the last day, Um, Kuiper is arguing, there will be a complete splitting of the organism where humanity is completely split into two and those who are in Christ will be fully in heaven and those who are not in Christ will not enjoy that presence. And so this is the biblical language of, for example, Jesus would say, I will divide the sheep from the goat, right? The wheat from the tare, you see? Kuiper is observing those texts and he's saying, We only enjoy this relative commonality because we live in this era of common grace. We live in this era of um, 
redemptive history where the, the final judgment has not yet appeared and the goat and the lamb both reside in, in relative stability that God sustains. That's why there's false believers. That's why there's people who um, are believers or claim to be believers at one point and then they become non-believers later, right? So let me, let me define common grace a little bit more clearly if we just define antithesis more clearly. I've used the word common grace before. But common grace is a non-salvific. It's a grace that doesn't save. And there are three aspects to common grace. This is below the quotes from Calvin and Owen because we don't have time to go through Calvin and Owen. I've shown some biblical texts there too if you want to take a look at it. The first aspect of common grace is God's general favor towards his fallen creation. So God shows forth his favor to the just and the unjust, right? He continues to make it rain for the unjust. He continues to sustain their lives. He puts his spirit uh, within them in some way so that they continue to live and breathe and have their being in him, right? So God has not left his fallen creation all the way to themselves, not in this age of redemptive history. And that's grace because it's unmerited. Because um, what they truly deserve, what we truly deserve, in our fallen state is the wrath of God. We don't even deserve to live. So it's grace that is shared in common between believer and unbeliever because God um, continues to sustain them and continues to show his favor towards fallen creatures. The second aspect of common grace is God's restraint of sin. God restrains sin so that um, the unbeliever is never fully consistent with his own identity. We've mentioned that before. And that's in the language of Romans 1 that we've observed before that when God is wrathful against the unbeliever, he lets them go and lets them pursue what they um, fallenly desires, right? God gave them up. God gave them over to their desires. So the wrath of God is actually in letting you um, follow your sinful impulses, you want that? I'll give you what you want. But in his common grace, he restrains that fallen desire so that you're never fully consistent with your sinful principle, especially when you're not in Christ. And so not only does God restrain sin in his common grace, but in, in, uh, the third aspect is also important. God enables the unbeliever to commit formally good actions despite their innate depravity. So the unbeliever could um, walk the elderly across the street. The unbeliever could make um, really good economists and good bakeries and and great um, logicians. The unbeliever can do a lot of things. But notice, the unbeliever only does that because of grace. No different than we, fundamentally, right? The only reason why we continue to pursue things intellectually and fruitfully is because of grace. And that's why the unbeliever lives on borrowed capital, but I'll, I'll cover that later. Now, before I move on to borrowed capital, I, w- I want to just emphasize um, um, and resist a temptation that I know we all have. And, and that temptation is this. Um, apart from this reformed account of what accounts for commonality, right? you're going to be tempted to say, well, okay, 
why don't we just get rid of these antithetical principles and just live in the secular middle, right? Let's not talk about religion. Let's not talk about philosophy. Let's just uh, make some money. <laughs> Let's just have a good time. Let's not think about that too much. It makes my brain hurts, right? Let's just live in the secular middle, uh, this, this secular neutral sphere of commonality. And see, the problem with religion, I'm talking as a devil's advocate here, the problem with religion is because it, it's divisive. Why can't we just all get along with what all we all get along with? Um, you know, like, 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 just make it simple, you know? We just love one another. Let's just not harm people. This is all, we can all agree on that, right? All right, I want you all to become good Reformed theologians now. How do you respond to that? No, 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 don't do that. <laughs> because, because that's, that's what's happened. That's secularism, right? Um, secularism abstracts um, general, moral, um, often undefined, whimsical <laughs> sentiments, not even propositions, sentiments, and they abstract these sentiments apart from worldviews and apart from principles. Right? They just kind of make them float. Um, and that's why they have to center their worldview on feeling and not on um, propositions. Because feeling is undefinable. Well, if it feels good for you, man, let's just do, let's just do stuff, you know? Like, no, right? How, do, how would you respond to that? How do you respond to that sentiment? Now that you're, you're good Reformed theologians, hopefully. It's, okay, it's impossible. It's inconsistent with who we are. Uh, how do you show them that it's impossible? Don't just assert that. Uh, it's still suppressing. Okay. How so? Okay. Okay. Good. So, so you can't. I, what I'm hearing is um, it's impossible, and you can't actually consistently live that way. Why? Why not? Think about, for example, um, let's just take the most abstract, uh, common sentiment that you can think of. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm people. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you um, propose a transcendental critique of that? Because normally, normally, I feel like when, when, when Christians like, face that, like, let's just not harm people and love one another. Christians are like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's your temptation. Don't don't do that. <laughs> All right, and I want you to I want you to not be like stumped by that sort of sentiment because that's kind of a conversation stopper for a lot of us, right? Don't 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 be fooled by that. Um, how would you respond to that? Oh, Right. Good, yeah. Um, and how, how would you apply that specifically to that sentiment? 
uh, let's just love one another. Let's, uh, let, we could do whatever you want as long as we don't harm each other. Sure. Sure. Right. And what if they say, well, the problem with Hitler is because he harmed people? Yeah. Good, yeah, so, so, okay, so, so good. I, I hope that what you're trying to, uh, that's a good response, Andrew. I hope that what you're getting, though, is, is this sense in which there's this level of dissatisfaction. Hopefully what this, this has shown you is that you should have this sense of dissatisfaction with any um, free-floating sentiment not grounded in worldview, right? You should feel that immediately, okay? You should be asking the kind of questions, what grounds that? You should be kind of asking the questions, why do you think that? You should be asking the question, what is it about your worldview that makes sense for you? Why, why, does it, why does it make sense for you that you shouldn't harm anyone? How do you define harm anyway? Okay, then suddenly we started thinking about the philosophical, the theological. Well, harm is if you don't feel um, sentient pain, for example, if you don't sense pain. Okay, um, sometimes when, when your child is, um, uh, is wanting to, for example, learn how to ride a bike. This is funny because I don't know how to ride a bike. Okay, it was, it's a long story, anyway. And that's, that's completely fine, so totally secure in Christ. <laughs> um, as, if your child wants to learn how to ride a bike, there's a real sense in which you as a parent um, have to be okay with them falling and feel pain so that they can learn from it, right? So it, it's not sensory pain that you're talking about, so how do you define pain? If you define a sensory pain, I've just given you a counterexample. Okay, so we try... See, these moral sentiments that people think are just non-controversial, free-floating, everyone can agree with it, the moment you push them on definitions, no, most of the time, um, you're going to get at worldview assumptions that are underneath, that are presupposed and not argued for. And you've got to bring that out. You've got you, you to you make that explicit. And most of the time, like I've argued in the first lecture, people are just not self-conscious about their assumptions. And Christians are not self-conscious about where you are getting your sentiments from. All right? So... Um, another example of this, as I'm just reading a book by James K. Smith, how he argued that Western society is living on borrowed capital. Why is that such an assumption for you today that um, you shouldn't judge other people? That's such a common sentiment. Well, you could do whatever you want as long as you don't judge people. Because if you read <laughs> the theorists of the ancient world, it's very common to judge people. How did it become a common sense intuition that you shouldn't judge other people? And people think, sorry, go ahead. You yourself don't want to be judged. All right. So, so, but in the ancient world, right, it is so common for you to take justice and judgment into your own hands in tribal wars and um, vindictive um, 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 power claims, right, in the ancient world. That's why, you know, one empire falls and another empire rises up. 
why is it so common in the ancient world to talk about war and justice and, and judgment, and it is a proper, natural, common-sense intuition for you to judge, but it is no longer today? Okay, no. <laughs> I was thinking about Hitler, really. Well, if you, if, you, if you trace an intellectual genealogy, a history of ideas, it is precisely because of the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> right? I'm just trying to say that, that Jesus said, let us not judge, lest you too be judged. Why? Because God is the judge. God is the judge that judges all of humanity, and he's the righteous judge. So don't take judgment into your own hands. So when you suffer persecution, right, Jesus says, and trust yourself unto the Lord. And First Peter repeats the same thing. And trust yourself unto the Lord, who is the righteous judge of all people. Don't take judgment into your own hands. You see, the sentiment that you shouldn't judge other people, lest you too be judged, um, is actually grounded in a theology. It's a theological claim which grounds that sentiment. What secularism has done is a kind of um, historical amnesia of where they get these sentiments from. So they try to retain the sentiment, but abstract it away from the theology from which it comes. Not realizing that that sentiment is not a universal common sense intuition, precisely because in the ancient world, nobody took that for granted. People took it for granted that you should judge other people. People took it for granted that you should go out to war. People took it for granted that you should defend your own. You should defend your family. You should fight back when you get slapped, right? That's completely contrary to the teachings of Jesus. But precisely because Christianity had become the theological penelope of, of, of all things, right? It's the, the West has been so predominated by a Christian history that the virtues and the ethics of Christianity stuck around even when the worldview of Christianity became slowly um, eroded by secularism. And so secularism lives in this free-floating sentiments that they actually inherited from Christianity, but try to abstract these sentiments away from Christianity. And so you have this terrible conundrum because everyone becomes completely inconsistent. People say, well, you shouldn't harm people, and people get depressed, suicide rates are going up. People have political debates without defining human nature, without defining happiness. They quote the American Constitution as if it doesn't say God in the very beginning, right? Because you abstract these definitions from their theological origins. And so you can't live in the secular middle because the secular middle is contingent upon underlying worldviews. What I hope this kind of picture gives you is that this secular, quote-unquote secular middle is actually the icebergs of worldviews and conflict. And from the outside, under, from the top, right, it looks like you have all things in common. But all you have to do is make one another more epistemically self-conscious, um, you know, dig out the assumptions and the presuppositions underneath each other's worldviews, and then you'll see underneath not harming one another, underneath let's not be judged, are a whole host of commitments that are either irreconcilable or borrow on Christian principles, right? So, you know, oh, sorry, Mike. Go for it. Um, yes and no. Yes, in the sense where if you're encountering an unbeliever, there's a real sense in which you should take them for their word for it. They're not Christians. But no, in the sense um, 
they're still living in common grace, and because it's not yet the final judgment, you know that there's still a possibility that they might still be saved. So you know that at the end of the day, you and him came from the same lot. <laughs> and you were plucked out of the fire, and you too can be an instrument by God's grace that that person could come to the same kingdom with you. You see what I mean? So, so if you just treat them as people antithetical to you, you'll just end up becoming like the Anabaptists of the 19th century. Let's just go live in a hill, cultivate our own laws, cultivate our own farms, you know, and just live our own way and, and be completely separate from the world. But if you treat them um, only by virtue of your commonality, you become secular Christians, where there's nothing different about you um, from anyone else. You're never challenging them according to their lives and principles. You see what I mean? So this is the only paradigm, I think, that accounts for and resists both separatism and conformity, world flight and world conformity. Um, a common grace paradigm makes you want to engage with the world while realizing the antithesis underneath the common grace commonality, but at the same time wants you not to conform to the world as you engage the world in a kind of liberal secularism that reduces Christian claims to the natural. Tazar and, and, and Andrew. Wise, yeah. Yeah, I think this is the kind, this is actually the only paradigm that helps you become wise in that because in this sort of paradigm, you realize that you're never really consistent yourself. So you come to the conversation with a kind of sympathy. Um, hey, I struggle in the very same ways that you are. Um, uh, and I still think in a lot of the ways, the same ways that you do. And in fact, because we're living in a common grace world, I depend upon your work and labor to thrive on the, on the very things that, that I take for granted. The coffee that I take from the wood from Ikea, right? From, like, you know. So, and at the same time, however, you're not fooled by that into thinking, well, you're just, you're all good, bro. You know? You're not fooled into thinking, um, this, is, this, this is all that, that we are. We're just in, people in common. This is just a common humanity, right? You're not fooled into thinking that. Um, and you're looking for the points of contact where they're suppressing the knowledge of God, right? Which is why a point of contact is called point of contact. So you're always looking for when, are, when is this knowledge of God suppressed um, coming out? When is it popping back out? Because the point of contact that you have with the unbeliever is that they know this God that you're talking about. But they're suppressing it. So you're, you're looking for the reasons underneath their reasons. And you're wanting to have wise conversations. And that's why apologetics is not an intellectual takedown. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Right. Andrew. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's like four questions in there. Um, yes and no. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, you want to say something? Is a good in itself. Yeah. Um. I mean, uh, potentially, you know, I mean, that's such a loaded question because, like, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Do Roman Catholics and Christians worship the same God? Do, um, uh, what is the purpose of, of politics? You know, all those sort of questions. And also, um, um, how identical is your theology with your national identity? How identical is your theology with political ideology? Something there, there's there's something that irks me about like Fox News and the Christian right in America is because it's they so identify um, like the rights to guns to natural rights like you know how does that to connect you're, you're you're identifying a cultural assumption with your with a theology and you can't do those two things and you always have to make a distinction between the culture that you have inherited and the Christian theology that that you want to proclaim um, yes and no <laughs> yeah so yeah go ahead. Uh huh. Um, depends on how you define natural theology, and we don't want to get get um, too t tangled up into that debate. But I want to argue that um, arguments from evidences and nature only makes sense if you already presuppose the existence of God and never makes sense in abstraction from that. But we don't have to talk about that too much because I think there's, there's that that could take us into a long um, detour. Madden, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, that's where I make a distinction, and this goes back to Andrew's question. I, I do make a distinction between, um, because politics, I think, is inherently a product of common grace. Um, in other words, in heaven, there is no more presidents or democratic elections. Um, politics, uh, just like the police force and the fire, the fire department, only exists in a world of sin and in a world of common grace, right? Um, so in that sense, the question that I would ask the Muslim is, um, depending on which like uh, denomination of Islam they came from, is do you have a theology of common grace that can ensure relative uh, commonality in this age of plural plurality and conflict? Do you have a theology of common grace that enables and um, ensures this peace 
between believer and unbeliever? And do you have a political theology then that informs that 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 that, that is um, ensured by the theology of common grace? Because what I I feel is that Islam doesn't have a theology of common grace, and they identify culture with theology, and so there is no mandate to um, maintain the peace right a, a within antithetical principles. Whereas Christian theism, um, just as Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and mean to what is mine, we actually have a theology of common grace that says we don't expect theocracy. We don't expect hegemony until the last day. And so until then, we have the police department. We have um, politics to, to deal with. We have people to disagree with. We have to work with unbelievers all the time. And so I think Islam has a, has a theocratic impulse that denies common grace. And I think Christianity has this I don't want to say balance because I hate that word, but it's it's a it's a it's keeping together um, both the universal principle of Christ's lordship, but this view of redemptive history that says in the meantime we have to take these measures um, called politics as a as a as a necessity of common grace so that there's no all-out war all the time. But that that that's that's informing your view of politics because now politics is not an ideological thing. Politics just con uh, restrains uh, disagreements. And politics isn't meant to water down antitheses into a secular middle. Politics is merely a, uh, like a seatbelt principle. You know what I mean? Um, okay, does that answer your question? Sort of, yeah? Okay. Mike, last question. Yeah. Yeah. Every area of life, yes, yeah. Just, just amen to that. Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, though there's this humble um, reliance on the spirit and grace of God that you know there's no, there's no, there's not going to be any perfect consistency in this world. But we strive for it, and that's the purpose of um, sanctification. Yeah. Um, the church. Um, the church. So if the church preaches a, a distinctive transcendent God and becomes a people where you find your home base where that makes you a distinct people, you can't help but realize the discrepancy between what happens on Sunday and what happens for the rest of the week. Um, and if you're a Christian who doesn't go to church, you'll end up either um, separating yourself and living on YouTube or ending up uh, conforming yourself to secular society and being comfortable with the middle ground. And the reason why I avoid the word middle ground is because I don't want to picture this as a kind of horizontalized, neutral middle. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just the, the inconsistent middle um, that depends on these mountains underneath. You see what I mean? I don't want to picture it as a spatialized middle ground where here now it can all be in common. You see, because technically... At the root of things, it's not in common. You see what I mean? Yeah. Good questions, man. Cool, guys. Like, there's like two more pages from today's thing. <laughs> but um, um, 
Okay, let me just, like in two minutes, um, summarize uh, Burley Capital. I don't even know how to do this. Um, Burley Capital, right, the unbeliever stands on Burley Capital to have their formal agreements with you, right, because they're made in the image of God. And so the agreement is not based on a secular middle. It's based on borrowed capital. Um, maybe I'll go through that again next week. Um, and we'll talk about the paradox of commonness. But next week, we're going to cover the Trinity. Um, so come next week. It might be um, the most mind-boggling maybe, but it's okay. Um, I think it's, it's important to cover the Trinity. Because if we don't cover the Trinity, I think it'll, it'll still be unclear to you I mean, I've mentioned the, the differences between Islam and Christianity with their view of common grace, right? Um, but that's, that's, that's an important difference, but it's not an essential difference between the two. I think at the root of things is if you have a Trinitarian God, you have a very distinctive apologetic from which to draw. And so we're going to cover the Trinity next week. And I hope you guys are going to stick around for that. We may or may not cover all the other stuff from lecture two. Um, but read it. All right? Cool. Thank you, guys. And let me close in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this grace. Lord, keep us humble. Keep us grounded in the gospel. Uh, let this, again, not be an intellectual game, but um, truly, Lord God, a means of glorifying you amidst the nations. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.